Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is episode 110 of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the 411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Joining me today is my good friend and fellow reviewer, Kevin Pantoa. Kevin, how are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty great. How are you? I'm alive. I'm hanging out in the isolation station, and uh, everything seems to be okay. Yes, it's going uh, pretty well. It hasn't been as bad as I expected it to be, so that's good. That is good, and uh, it's... uh. Yeah, definitely a weird time. So I know we were talking. We wanted to do do something pleasant, something <laughs> something fun, and something that we knew we both loved. Yep. So we're going to go back to a time in 2015, and we're going to talk about a little promotion called Lucha Underground. And Lucha Underground is something that I know you and I both loved. And the funny thing about Lucha Underground is – I've been covering wrestling a ton since about 2003, and one of the big things since early 2000s until now was always if Lucha Libre could get a foothold in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's always been the big kind of what if, because you know the the growth of Univision and just the the growth of the Latino populace in the United States. There's always been a feeling that if Lucha could get on US TV at a good time, on a good channel, with good backing, that they could do some damage. Like everybody said, if Lucha gets on TV in that kind of aspect, it would do at least as good as TNA did during the Spike era. Mm -hmm. That's been like the big what if. And for whatever reason, I mean... Triple A is constantly between Conan and Vampiro and whatever other talking head. He's yeah. always talked about, we're coming to the U.S. We're going to tour the U.S. We're going to have TV of the U.S. And then nothing ever happens. It's just a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, it's like all talk. And CMLL is like, every once in a while, they would kind of talk about it. And then they would just fade away and like, nah, we're good. And so it's just, it's something that never happened. And then around 2012, there were rumblings of a serious Lucha promotion coming to us. And of course, at first, I didn't believe it because <laughs> I had been hearing it for 10 years. Yeah, you've been taught to be skeptic. And we had like Lucha Libre USA, which was like very short lived and kind of had its moments, but wasn't very good. But... Mm-hmm. I kept hearing things, and the initial, the initial thing was there was going to be a show um, with AAA involved called Lucha Uprising. Mm-hmm. And um, then, like, the name transitioned to Lucha. Uh, it was going to be, like, Lucha Endgame, and then it eventually became Lucha Underground. And I was still skeptical, but then all of a sudden, I hear Mark Burnett is going to be involved. And if you've watched Survivor and any myriad of reality TV shows, you know that is a big name in Hollywood. Yeah. And then, you know, we heard Robert Rodriguez was going to be involved. And if you're a movie fan, you know who the hell Robert Rodriguez is. (laughs) And then he had the El Rey Network, and it was going to be on the El Rey Network. And I'm still a little hesitant, Kev. Because it sounds great. But I've been burned so many times. 
<laughs> and then we finally got the birth of Lucha Underground in 2014 on the El Rey Network. And this was a real wrestling show. Well, depending on who you ask. Some yeah. people don't like to call it a wrestling show. They call it a TV show that happens to have wrestling involved. It's not, quote-unquote, a promotion. But whatever you call it, I found it fucking entertaining. Very much so, on the same page. Um, I had a different introduction to it because I wasn't really, like, you know, you said you've been covering wrestling for a website and everything since 03. Um, that wasn't really the case for me. I didn't hear much about Lucha Underground. Um, I know after it premiered, I saw maybe a commercial or two, and I thought, that looks kind of cool. Like, I know who... I remember there was, like, a BuzzFeed article about... It had all the gifts of, like, Prince Puma and Johnny Mundo in their first uh, first main event. And I was like, this looks cool. But I never really made the time to watch it. And then I had to get my wisdom teeth pulled at the early 2015 and they were like, you just got to stay in bed all day. And I didn't know what to, you know, what was I going to do with that day? And I happened to find, I think it was every episode up until Aztec Warfare. So I think it was, I don't know how many episodes that was, on demand. And I started watching it and I immediately became hooked and I wrote something about it like right after I started watching it. And I was just like totally in the rest of the way. Yeah, and the the fun thing about Lucha Underground is... It was. It did not try to be WWE. It did not try to be TNA. It did not try to be Ring of Honor. It didn't even try to be AAA. Mm -hmm. This was a very different product. And like I said, some people saw it as a dramatic television show that just happened to have professional wrestling involved. And it was very story-based. And a lot of the stories didn't link with everybody because they weren't into that style of thing. But... Mm -hmm. Lucha Under Underground is very much a, a B-movie, a grindhouse movie. It has all these aspects of kind of wacky movies that I personally love. Yep. And then it had professional wrestling involved. And we have a ton of talent involved on these shows, which we're going to talk about here as we go through. For sure. So not only do you have this kind of out-of-the-box way of presenting wrestling, you had the... The backstage stuff, which was never the hidden camera backstage. It was always very cinematically shot. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it was very different. And it was a ton of fun for me to watch because one of the reasons I loved covering was it was different from every other wrestling show I was covering. There was, again, a ton of talent involved. And, like, they were going after all kinds of people because they, you know, like on this show, we're going to see... Um, Brian Cage, Willie Mack, Eva Lee, from who was in the um, Tough Enough gimmick, mm -hmm. Drago, Hernandez, just on part one. Uh, Black Lotus, who was in WWE Developmental, and you look at like these talents. They were going after some people that were working Japan as well. They had tried to get the Young Bucks. I mean, they were making an effort to go after talent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, this was not like let's just grab a couple people and tape some bullshit in the warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was like it's not just that it was cinematic and you know even though it was like kind of b-movie stuff the like production on it was very well done like everything looked exactly the way that i feel they wanted it to look nothing really came off cheap even the over the top like goofy stuff you know it still worked and looked good and i think i, I remember one of the shows that you reviewed uh, i think it was when the um disciples of death or whatever when like mill killed them all 
Yeah. And I think somebody commented and was like, oh, if TNA did this, people would be bashing it. And it's like, you know, when we got taught and when I was in college and they taught us how to write, you know, like screenplays and stuff, they tell you specifically stick to like set, make a set of rules for your film or your TV show and stick to them. And TNA and WWE, those things don't really always work because they try to present themselves as real sometimes where Lucha Underground, this was a world where we knew this stuff was possible. So it fit into that world. Yeah, and that's the thing. They created a universe, and what worked in their universe worked in their universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Milton worked as ripping out a brother's heart worked on this show. Now, if I'm watching Impact and Drew McIntyre tries to rip <laughs> out Eli Drake's fucking heart, yeah, it, it doesn't work. Now, granted, Impact got into doing wacky shit like that in the Undead Realm now after the, yeah. after the Hardy stuff, but it's like that's the thing. It's like, you have to play within your own set of rules, whatever you create. And that's the reason it worked. Cause Lucha Underground again was part grindhouse part, you know, B movie part comic book. It was all this shit. Yeah. I, I think I remember cage punched somebody like a hole through their chest when he had the gauntlet. Like, and I, it, I believe he blew up in. somebody's head actually backstage. Yeah, yeah. actually it might've been, um, Lorenzo Lamas' character, maybe. I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, Lorenzo Lamas, no. <laughs> Speaking of B-movie greatness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but yeah, it, again, like you said, it's like when you're writing a screenplay or you're creating a show in a quote-unquote universe, it is important to establish your roles that your fan base knows what your roles are and that you play to them. And I think that's one of the things that Lucha Underground did very well, even though it petered out in the last season. I think that they largely stuck to that. Every once in a while, yeah, they didn't. But, I mean, for the for the most part, by and large, they stuck to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it works. So you have this, uh, they're in Boyle Heights here in California, and they're in a, what everybody admitted was a shitty warehouse that they turned into the temple. Yeah. And it was an underground fight club. So we're in 2015. It is a fight club, essentially, ran by a gentleman named Dario Cueto. Dario is the best. (laughs) And here's the thing. Dario Cueto was, quote-unquote, an authority figure. Because he was the owner of this club, and he ran everything. But the best part is, is he wasn't a wrestling guy. He was an actor that they hired. Mm -hmm. And he was fucking awesome and pretty much the greatest authority figure in wrestling history. Absolutely. Like you can tell if you go back and watch the first few episodes, they seem to try to set him up as like your generic kind of heel authority figure. But he quickly they moved away from that. And he was just a guy who liked violence. Like he would just book these insane matches, not because he had a vendetta against somebody, but just because he was like, they might kill each other. I love this. And and that's the key. It quickly pivoted into like he would have heels face heels, baby faces face baby faces. He just wanted to see plunder. Yeah, he was a promoter who was like, I'm going to, you know, even when they would like hype matches, he'd be like, well, this is not going to happen for two weeks because I need time to promote it. And it felt, even though this was a wacky world, it felt like this is a real character we could believe in because he's like, I like violence and money and I want those two things. My favorite part is when Dario would come out and and announce a quote unquote new match style (laughs) stipulation. And then he would cackle like the most evil villain, like he had created something nobody had ever heard of. Yeah, I know. It was, but it was just—it was always a variation on something we as wrestling fans knew. But that's kind of what made him so great. 
It really is. Like, you just, you know, uh, we're going to see the Believers Backlash match. That's just the, like, the Samoa Joe, Jeff Jarrett strap match, you know, with the fans that they did in TNA, but he would have announced it. Like, it was the cool thing. There's that YouTube video of him screaming ladder match, like, for 20 minutes in a row just on repeat because of the excitement he had for it. Uh, there's so many, like, gifts you can find online. It's just him excited about everything with his ring the bell and, you know, Dario was such a good character. When we used to do the year-end awards on 4-1 Mania, I think he won best, like, non-wrestling character for me, like, three or four years running. Yeah, he, he did. He uh, he was clear. And, like, a lot of people voted for him that weren't even watching the show as much as we were because, like, everybody just kind of realized that this dude is fucking great. Yeah, they, yeah, and honestly, you know, I mean, not we're not talking about later seasons, but when season four came around after his character was killed off, it was one of the things that kind of drew me away from that final season. Like, it's not as fun without Dario. Yeah, and that's understandable, man. So it's um, mm-hmm. so we have this crazy world created. And like I said, they play in these worlds. And they ran 37 episodes in season one that culminated with a two-part uh, season finale, which they dubbed Ultima Lucha, part one mm-hmm. and two. So we head to Ultima Lucha Part 1, which is July 29th, 2015. Feels like eons ago at this stage. Kevin, it really does. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. And we start off with cinematics backstage as a young lady named Black Lotus is training in her cage as she's been captured. And Black Lotus was Angela Fong, who was in WWE Developmental and was somebody at the time that WWE hoped would become like as good as Gail Kim. Yeah. And then they quickly gave up on her like they gave up on Gail Kim. Yep. And I don't even, like, to be honest, I haven't really seen much of her since Lucha Underground. Well, she had a baby um, and stuff. I think she oh, was called Peace God. That. Yeah. Yeah, she might have just been like, you know what? I don't need to put my body on the line anymore. Yeah, so she's in this uh, cage training. Dario Cueto arrives, our evil genius, offering her champagne. And we had not seen Black Lotus at this point for several weeks, so it was nice to know she was alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when Dario is trying trying to manipulate her because she had uh, been trained by someone named Dragon Azteca. And she thought that Dario Cueto had killed him, and there's all this drama going on throughout the whole season. Yeah. And... Dario explains he has his um his brother is in a cage. His name is the Monster Matanzaqueto, <laughs> which would end up being Jeff Cobb. We would find out. Yeah. Um. And Dario explains that his father made a lot of money basically doing underground fights with his son Matanza. love. <laughs> and yeah. Dario explains that um Dragon Azteca was the one that killed her parents, not the Monster Matanza. And he's basically trying to manipulate her, which has been a, a big story throughout the first season. Mm-hmm. Just wacky storytelling. But again, it's fun B-movie stuff. And it's a... Uh, Dario is just such the ultimate douchebag. It's so good. Absolutely. So we start off our show technically in the ring, but it doesn't stay in the ring much. A falls count anywhere between Brian Cage and The Mac. Obviously, Brian Cage and Willie Mac, both SoCal staples. Both went on to Impact Wrestling. Willie Mack's still there. Brian Cage left. He's nursing a torn bicep and is reportedly AEW bound. But who the hell knows these days because we're on quarantine. Yep. So Brian Cage ends up winning our first Ultima Lucha match, Kev. About 745 via pin. And uh, he uh, he kind of killed Willie Mack here. 
<laughs> yeah, this is uh, like one of my favorite openers ever because especially for what Ultima Lucha is, like it immediately was like, this is not going to be your everyday wrestling show. They had a false count anywhere match. And my favorite thing about it is that I'm pretty sure they were in the ring for maybe like 12 seconds maybe. because the fight starts during the entrances and it just, they, they just have so much like fun with the fact that they barely get in the ring. Um, they throw in so many fun spots throughout, like Willie Mack pulling out the cooler and, you know, with the beers and then hitting the stunner and commentary, like nobody kicks out of a stunner. Um, they use the tables well. Like it's it's literally one of the most fun matches you can find and it's super short. Uh, yeah, that finish though. Like you think about it, it's a little insensitive, but it's really cool. Uh, Cage wins by curb stomping the Mac through a cinder block. And it looks awesome. It does. It really does. Like you said, you know, the ring is just, the ring is there because it's a wrestling show in a building. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I think they used it for a spot possibly. And it might've been like on the apron. Yeah. <laughs> Not even in the ring. And so the best part is, is they completely play to this stipulation. Well, they tried to make it different from the other matches we're going to see. Um, they had a really hot crowd for it too. Was the best oh, yeah. part because like they were, again, we're in California. These guys are SoCal staples, and they're obviously over there. And the the Temple crowds were always great on these shows. They were, especially as like the stories got deeper and deeper, and people got more attached to these wrestlers. You know, like granted, the first few episodes are. Not bad TV, but once they started getting attached to the Pentagons and the Max and the, all these characters, they got way more into it, and the crowds just continued to get better over time. Exactly, and that was kind of the best part. They really became part of the show. They were like a weird combination between like the um, like a PWG show and like those invested Kirk and Hall show crowds. Yeah, <laughs> that like that are like attached to like the New Japan dads and the Lions and their favorites, and then. The PWG crowds at times are just insane in that small building. That's a good comparison. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, and they added so much to the show, but this is like, it goes a smidge under eight minutes. It's like really good, tremendously fun, like borderline great. And like, I don't think you can ask for a lot better to open the show, especially the time, the uh, the time thing, because it's like, while it's a blast, I mean, Part of me was pissed because I wanted to see a little more because both guys are so good. But then again, it's like, this was so much fun, and that's a decisive as fuck finish, so okay. Yeah, and you know, it's one of those finishes where Mac loses nothing because if you lose to getting your head kicked through a brick, like, you, you don't look weak in defeat at all. Exactly. Um, so just, yeah, so much fun. A good, good opener. Our first title match here at Ultima Lucha was the Trio's championship match, which were the unlikely champions of Ivalice, Son of Havoc, and Angelico. Just the wackiest fucking tag team in Lucha Underground that never should have worked. Ivalice and Son of Havoc were like kind of boyfriend girlfriend at the beginning, and then like he was struggling and then dumped her because she was annoying. <laughs> and then like Angelico was just Angelico and ended yeah. up hanging out with them, and it's really weird. And, they were facing off with Katrina's Disciples of Death, which were, I believe, Barrio Negro, El Sinistro, De La Muerte, and Terce. Yeah, and I think, I don't remember who each of them was. I know one of them was Ricky Mandel. Yeah. Like, guys who basically jobbed in the early Lucha Underground episodes. 
Exactly. So you had these uh, three like masked dudes in body suits. They were the the henchmen of Katrina and Mil Muertes, and they they do the big title change here. Um, this was a match where Evelise got injured, mm-hmm. and um, that hurt the match. Even though she struggled through to the end, and it uh, you know they tried to do the title change because they were um, they were planning big things by the end of uh, part two of this show. Yeah, uh, definitely a case of, you know, setting these up going forward. Um, I probably went a little too high when I originally reviewed this. I had it like at three and a half stars. Um, I still enjoy it. It's a fun match, even with Ivelisse not being able to do much. Um, There are some moments where it feels like they're just setting things up so Angelico could do one of his crazy dives. Yeah, he uh, again run off of Dario's fucking office again. (laughs) And the camera angle for it was fantastic. Like the, it was like a wild behind shot of him, which you know we haven't gotten for that before because he was known for the big uh, dive he did when they won the titles. Uh, going back to that, I just want to point out when they won the titles, one of my favorite like moments in wrestling in recent memory because I grew so attached to this trio. Um, their story was great together. Um, I do want to give a shout out to Katrina. Like she is, I feel super underrated because she was so good in this role and in the wrong person's hands, this could have been a disaster because she was asked to do some really cheesy things <laughs> like holding the rock to raise people like, you know, to raise them up. And, you know, just all the reincarnation. She was like a ghost at one point, I feel like, um, but she always made it work. And her performance was always like super committed. Um, yeah. Like I said, good match, not anything great, but uh, the title change only worked because of what they were setting up for season two. I I uh, I agree with your sentiments on Katrina. She was great through the entire run of Lucha Underground, mm-hmm. and um, she is somebody again. Uh, we you, we kind of talk about like WWE had, yeah, and they let her go. And Katrina, you look at her. She proved during Lucha Underground, she was still a solid wrestler. Uh, mm-hmm. She was a fucking smoke show, yeah, and she was very versatile in terms of promo work and acting. Yeah, like like I said, anybody, another person you give that role to, it's not going to work. But she fully committed to it, and you were like, all right, I'm in on this story. Yeah, she was the evil empress of Lucha Underground, and she made it work. Yeah, the, the run of her, like, running the temple early on in season two is one of my favorites. Yeah, and it's, uh, again, it's, I think you say it best. It's like, you put somebody else in that role, it probably shit cans. Yeah. So... Our uh, main event of night one is, uh, is something Kevin brought up earlier, a Believer's Backlash match featuring Drago and Hernandez. Yes, Hernandez, the man that was in Lucha Underground. Supermax. Yes, returned to Impact and then had to be written out of Impact because his contract was still good with Lucha Underground and they fucked up, which caused them to lose weeks of TV and they had to re-edit all kinds of shit. It was a yeah. total shit show at the time. And all I can think of was, you guys did all of that for Hernandez? That's what I was going to say. I was like, I remember in 09 or so when he started getting like a big push with TNA and he was in that, he had the Feast of Fired uh, briefcase. And I was like, people are seemingly in on this guy. And I always thought he was cool as a tag guy. Like his border toss was always great. And him and Homicide were a team I really enjoyed. Um, But yeah, I just, I wouldn't have gone, jumped through hoops for Hernandez. Yeah, they were going after that elusive Latino star that WWE's been searching for forever. Yeah, even though they have a roster full of them. <laughs> yeah, 
I, I, I never understood that. It's like you sit there, it's like, okay, you still have Ray. You could make somebody with Ray if you really wanted to, but they don't. Yep. And then I'm sitting there thinking, you have fucking Andrade standing right there, who's mm-hmm. really fucking awesome. And you're like, eh, we don't know quite what to do with Andrade. We'll make an LIJ Day Orlando stable with him and like Angel Garza, who's awesome. And then there's Austin Theory. He's he's the Kenny King of the uh, <laughs> Lafaction and Gobernable and Ring of Honor is what he is. He is. And then I'm looking in developmental, and you got fucking El Hijo de Fantasma, and he's fucking yeah. awesome. Like like you said, there are a ton of Latino stars staring them in the face. There are. So yeah. And just on the on the Zelina thing, uh, you know, at first it seemed like she was just getting all the Spanish guys, and then now she got Austin Theory. It's like, are you just taking everyone whose name starts with A? Like, <laughs> what's her deal? Oh, uh, but yeah, Hernandez was a dude. He was really over in uh, TNA slash Impact at the time, and like you said, much better suited as a as the tag guy. Um, but they did try to push him, and of course, one of the first things they did when they tried to push him is he won the Feast for Fire thing, and then he cashed it in and lost like a fucking idiot. Yeah, because he cashed in in like a five way match. I'm like, you're yeah. not smart. He was not. So this was the um, Believers Backlash match. Drago had been. Um, banished from the promotion, got back in through a loophole. He and Hernandez had issues right away, basically because Hernandez attacked him with a strap because not only does he not like Drago, but he did not believe dragons existed, which was the like the whole crux of this feud. He wanted to kill Drago because he doesn't believe in dragons. Yeah, it's one of my favorite like ridiculous setups for a feud ever because it's literally he was like, like he's the bad guy in this feud because the fans just want to believe in dragons, and he's like, "Nope, dragons aren't real." <laughs> so the the believers backlash. We had the believers getting an entrance. They have straps, and I guess the best way to put this nicely is the believers here in this match are a bunch of friends of the people involved in the show and podcast geeks like Hot Tub Guy, who I guess was a <laughs> thing that interviewed wrestlers in a hot tub. I don't know, but that's what this was, and they proceed to have this match. Um, Drago was really great throughout Lucha Underground. He was one of the more consistent and fun guys. Mm. Hernandez was, if you've watched Hernandez for any amount of time, Hernandez was Hernandez in Lucha Underground. Every once in a while, he'd be good. Every once in a while, he'd be bad. Yep. And that was just kind of the, the tale of Hernandez. He was very inconsistent throughout his whole career. Um, this is good, though, because they play to the stipulation, the crowd loves it, and the hero wins. The dragon wins to prove he's real. And yep. that's all and, that matters. Yeah, that's all that matters. In this world, dragons are completely real, and Drago was indeed a dragon. Um, like you said, this is a fine match. Um, I don't think it's anything like you need to go out and see. It's fun. The crowd got to whip on <laughs> Hernandez a bit. Um, maybe this was their way of punishing that issue that you know he had where they had to edit everything. They're like, we'll just let the fans beat on you. Um, but yeah, it's fine. It's it's. I wouldn't. I don't think I would have like gone with it as the night one main event. No, I agree because uh, it's lackluster. You could have thrown this like on the middle of night two somewhere. Um, but yeah, maybe you want to go with the opener for night two as the night one main event because it's big names and stuff. Uh, Kev, if we're looking at night one here by itself, what are you thinking uh, overall final thoughts and score out of 10? Uh, score out of 10 on this one, I'd probably do like a 7 on it. 
um, like I said, the main event's kind of lackluster, but that opener is... And even though I say it's lackluster, it's not like it's a bad match. It's like a three-star, you know, enjoyable match. Um, the opener is a ton of fun. The second match is good and has, like, really good story progression. All the cinematic stuff was working. So it's a very enjoyable hour. It's just not as good as, you know, night two or as good as it could have been, you know? Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a really solid seven because I did enjoy it. There's nothing you have to absolutely see on it, mm-hmm. but it's fun and it's. I thought it set the stage well for night two, which was going to be the the big two hour spectacular. Yeah, it did. It did exactly what it needed to. So we jump to night two now, and that takes place August fifth, two thousand fifteen. Night two and. This was a, a, a sort of sad start to the show because this was when uh, Roddy Piper had passed away. And oh, yeah. uh, the, sh- the show is dedicated to, and I quote, the original Rudo Roddy Piper. That's a fantastic way to put it. Yeah, and it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a little sad thinking back on it, but it was a, it was a very lovely little tribute. And we got a, a great video package to open up our show catching everybody up on what happened in the season to bring us up to snuff on what's going to happen here. Commentary is different for night two. It's Matt Stryker, but no Vampiro because he's wrestling. We get Michael, the voice Chevello. And if you guys know your combat sports, he's uh, done K one uh, dreams and Goku, the contender Asia, pretty much anything that was on access TV at the time. And he was a huge fan of wrestling was always dropping wrestling references during his uh, MMA commentary. So I thought he was a good get because you have Vampira wrestling, and he's he's a wrestling fan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and what did you think about him, like, in his performance? Because obviously he's done, you know, a lot more, but did you think he worked well with Matt Stryker? Yeah, I think overall he worked well. I mean, I, I didn't, like, the commentary on the show overall didn't rock my world because I think... Honestly, I thought Matt Stryker was very lacking overall in Lucha Underground at times. He annoyed me a lot more than he impressed me. That's fair. <laughs> and, like, um, just, like, some of the weird shit he would say during matches. It's like, dude, it's like, just call the fucking match. Yeah, it was like, he always felt like somebody to me who, because he was a teacher, because he's a smart person, he liked to flaunt that he was smart and would say things that you know just try to impress and it just never felt like it belonged and it felt out of place and then some things were just awkward yeah like there's that um uh was it marty the moth and um fucking kill shot they have that like military based street fight remember the weapons of mass destruction yeah and he's dropping all kind of weird fucking political military bullshit like talking about like hostage crises and shit and i'm like Dude, it's a fucking professional wrestling match in a weird fucking universe where people come back to life. I don't need to hear about some 1987 hostage crisis to get over your fucking political view during this wrestling match. It's just yeah, just or, tell me fucking Marty DeMoth is a sick bastard and uh, kill shots trying to kill. So, yeah, or just even on this show, there's this part coming up, which I mean we'll get to in a minute, but where um someone gets, like, spanked, and he's like, oh, I'm going to watch that on my DVR so many times. And I'm like, why did you say that? Like, that was a weird choice to say that at that moment. Yeah, Matt Stryker's really fucking weird. (laughs) So, anyway, like I said, Vampira will be wrestling later in the evening. We open up in a match with Jonathan Mundo, obviously uh, 
back in WWE these days. Alberto El Patron is his opponent, and uh, uh, at least Alberto El Patron was largely good in Lucha Underground, is the good news. But um, yeah, he's thankfully pretty much not doing anything these days. He keeps lying about starting a promotion. He keeps saying he's going to come back to WWE. I hope it never happens. Yeah, he's pretty canceled at this point. Yeah, and then obviously he got the boot from fucking Impact when he was being an asshole, doing drugs, and ruining Paige's life. So yeah, Yeah. thankfully he's uh, numping around a lot. He was such an up-and-down guy for me because I remember when he first showed up, I was like, in WWE, I said, you know, this guy seems cool. And then when he won the WWE title from Punk, I was like, oh, I'm over Del Rio. And then he, like, was lame to me for, like, a year. Then all of a sudden I was at a point where I was like, oh, Del Rio's cool again. And then he showed Belucha Underground, and I was like, this is dope. Like, I, you know, I like Del Rio. And he was, like you said, he was mostly good in Lucha Underground. He, even, he had a good match with Tejano, which I, that was surprising that's, to me. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> and then he got, when he came back to WWE, I was like, on, you know, the idea of him when he beat Cena for the title. I was like, this is cool. And then, I, like, a month later, I was already back on the, oh, I'm done with Del Rio. And of course, since then, he's, you know, like I said, he's canceled at this point. Um, but he was just such a hot and cold wrestler for me. He really was, and I largely agree with you. There were times in WWE where I was like, yeah, this dude's fucking great. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh my god, can you go through the motions anymore, <laughs> my friend? It's like, I know you're making bank, but Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, these guys actually had a really pretty great match back on episode 26 of this season. They did. And um, again, like I said, El Patron largely was really, really good in Lucha Underground. Um, and so we have this match here. It's him and Johnny Mundo. They have, let's see, they got about just under 14 minutes. Johnny Mundo ends up winning at the end of the day when Melina makes her uh, Lucha Underground debut. She takes out El Patron with the um, AAA Mega Heavyweight title. Yeah. Which, it, God, that's so weird seeing that. I saw, you know, I got to see that on TV the other week again in AEW. It's like, <laughs> I know. Like, I didn't even, it didn't even click for me until I saw Melina grab, like, I saw The Real come out with it. Or, sorry, El Patron come out with it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's because it's the title Kenny Omega has now. I know. It's so weird. That title is this, like, had such a weird-ass history. But, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Johnny Mundo ends up winning. Uh, I really enjoyed this match. The, the kind of sad thing is, is, like, uh, Melina ended up never coming back. Yeah. Because uh, I, I'm I'm essentially guessing because uh, of the Mundo-Tire relationship and they didn't want any drama. Yeah, I'm assuming so. It's weird because most of this, like, Lucha Underground was such a well-written show that it, you could tell that they thought out a lot of what they were going to do. And so it makes it stand out more when there's something that gets picked up or, like, a storyline that seems like it's going to start and then it disappears. Like, this one stood out because I'm watching it. And I'm like, oh, Malik never came back. <laughs> and yeah. it's one of the rare things that they set up that just didn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's really weird. But then we have the post-matches... <laughs> Patron getting his heat back, throwing uh, Johnny Mundo through a fucking window for some payback, and Mundo appears from this window. It's like he went through a window and they threw a bucket of blood on this motherfucker. It's excessive. He he comes out looking like a victim from a goddamn horror movie. And then Patron gets to spank Molina, which, you know, good on him. I mean, uh, for a little revenge. And it's a... I mean, I really like this opener. I I could have done without... There was a ref bump and some shenanigans. Could have done without that. Yeah. <clears throat> but I thought it was a really, really good way to open night two. 
And um, like it, like I said, these two worked well together, and this was one of those times where Alberto was on and actually working hard, and that's nice. And uh, Johnny Mundo, I've talked a lot about this. That's a dude, like, when he first started doing indie stuff after WWE, he was such a shit. He was so fucking lazy. He was just going through the motions. Hey, I'm Johnny Nitro. Fucking look at me, you know? And it's just like... And then, like, he started doing some AAA, and he was, like, really good in AAA. And then Lucha Underground, I loved him. I thought he had a really great impact run as well. So it's like I, I love Johnny Mundo here and um he's just he's great and he, he always pretty much delivered for me. I don't think there was there was never a time where I was like, This motherfucker's dogging it here, you know? Yeah, he always seemed to put forth his uh, a good effort in Lucha Underground. Um I didn't like his title run much, but that was more not due to him not trying, it was more due to there was constant like shit finishes with it and stuff. Yeah. Um but yeah, you know, he was a guy who in WWE people constantly praised him as this guy can be a world champion. And you know, when he had that SmackDown run where he wrestled Jeff Hardy in world title match and stuff, and I never really bought that. But then he got to Lucha Underground, I was like, okay, I can kind of see it more. Um, so yeah, this his run here definitely was probably his highlight for me. Uh, again, this match, like you said, very good. It, it did a good job mixing like the brawling elements with some quality wrestling, you know, because they did have some fight, you know, they fought outside of the ring for a while and that came off well. Uh, But then they got in the ring and everything they did was smooth. The Molina appearance was cool because I don't think anybody expected it. (laughs) Um, And like you said, the end, the the, the post-match stuff, it did go a little overboard. Like, did Marty Jannetty look like that when Shawn Michaels threw him, when, when he tried to jump out the barbershop window? That's right. He tried to jump out. Remember that? Yeah, Shawn Michaels clear. didn't. Yeah, yeah. I got, I got you. I, I listened to Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, it was it was a little overboard having to be that bloody. I did fucking die, though, watching it again because I had forgotten <laughs> how, how bloody it was because I looked back at my review and I'm like, oh, it seems like he's pretty bloody. And then I'm watching, like, oh, my God. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Like, seriously, he went through the window, and there was a dude that, like, dunked his head in a bucket of blood. Yeah, you would think you changed the channel to, like, a Saw movie or something. It's crazy. Oh, it's amazingly. it's And the, part of that is, like, why it's so good, though, because it is over the top. True. You know, it's just like, because if he comes through with, like, a little trail of blood coming down his forehead, it's like, oh, come on, you're Lucha Underground. You could do better than that. Yeah. Let's just go with the whole bucket of blood. We mixed this shit up. Let's use it. <laughs> uh, so then we went to a cinematic where Dragon Aztec arrives to try to rescue Black Lotus. This leads to Dario Cueto appearing and uh, revealing to Bl- Dragon Azteca that he has broken the treaty of their families by entering the temple and his penalty is death. And this leads to Black Lotus attacking him from her cage and she kills him with the death strike. Leading yeah. to Dario Cueto releasing her. Says uh, she started a war by doing that and only he can protect her. Dario Cueto, master manipulator. He releases Matanza and says that they're going to go to a new temple. And I believe this was official murder number two on the season. Uh, yeah, because Conan... Well, actually, it might have been number three, unless I'm mixing up seasons. Because I know Conan died in the, when he got put in the casket. Yeah, but um, they didn't... But, see, I, I don't count Conan's death right away because okay. they didn't admit Conan was dead until much later. True. So which one were you talking about? The Like, uh, the crew? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, because they didn't have time to, like, eat one of them. Yeah, um, I think uh, Cortez Castretis, or whoever it was, had their fucking face eaten. Yeah, not Ricky Reyes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much what it was to me. Um, my favorite part of this is, like, when Dario says, you know, that Matanza's coming with them, and he unlocks this, like, the cell door, and he starts looking up as if Matanza is, like, this giant monster. And I'm like, look, Jeff Cobb's, like, 4'10". Stop lying to me. <laughs> Jeff Cobb is just a big Taz. Like, I mean, he looked like Matanza when you see him in season two does look imposing, but he's certainly not tall. Hey, l- let's be fair to Jeff Cobb. He was the far superior Taz, okay? Uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I get you, dude. I mean, he is. I mean, th- that was the weird thing, and I, I remember people bitching so much. They hyped him up to be this gigantic monster, and I'm like. What the fuck did you want him to do? Get Groon Triple X who couldn't work to save his fucking ass? Yeah, it was like, you know, and I, that's one of the things I, I agree completely. People said that they wanted him to be bigger and more imposing. I was like, they could have gotten somebody who looked like whoever the wrestler was that played Bane and Batman and Robin. Yeah. But I'd rather them be like, Jeff Cobb is a wide dude. Like, he still takes up a lot of space. He's like Kingpin in the Spider Verse movie. And. He came in the ring and he still looked like a beast when he took everybody out in Aztec Warfare too. So I think it worked out. Well, that's the thing too. It's all how you present somebody. And to bring up your other point, you brought up Taz. I mean, Taz and ECW, Paul Heyman had people believing he was the baddest motherfucker on the planet. Mm-hmm. Because it didn't matter that Taz was a little short, stocky motherfucker. He was he was suplexing assholes on their heads. He was choking them out. You yeah. know, he was doing like. I remember there's a match. I have it's like on one of the maybe like Cyber Slam shows or some shit. Mm-hmm. It's like him versus Baracus. Oh yeah, they run in Baracus and Baracus like runs wild at the bell and fucking hits like a Memphis jumping pile driver on him. And and he he pops up and he's doing the big like arms out pose, looking all jacked. And Taz just does the hawk sit up on the pile driver no cell. And then starts suplexing this jacked up geek, and then he t- chokes him out in like two minutes. And it's like that's how you make a dude, you know? <laughs> it's like, yep, yeah. But we it's, talk about it. He knew how to book around people's shortcomings. Yeah, and they literally shortcomings. Ah, but anyway, you bring up Aztec Warfare. Yeah, that is the they fucking made Matanza one night though. Absolutely, so, he came in and dominated. That's so much fun. But uh, so we move on to. Pentagon Jr. versus Vampiro, the no fear match. And this was building up throughout the season with Vampiro on commentary, the path of Pentagon Jr. Vampiro kind of uh, just, you know, when he would talk on commentary, basically upsetting Pentagon. And Vampiro plays the evil Pope in this match. Yeah, coming out with the... Basically, like you said, looking like an evil pope. It's actually really cool. Yeah, it's a cool look. And uh, Pentagon Jr. is obviously fucking Pentagon Jr. And he's awesome. Yeah, the all white that he was wearing too looked cool because it was so different for him. Yeah, so they have this match. It's a zero fear match, which basically means they're going to fuck each other up with shit. Lots of shit. Light tubes, everything. Yeah, and this is one of those cases where, you know... I feel like Lucha Underground was good in the fact that if you read the spoilers to what happened on Lucha Underground, you'd be like, what the hell are they doing? And then you watch it unfold and you're like, oh, this is really cool. You would have told me that the hottest like act in the company, at the t- like he was coming in hot Pentagon, 
would wrestle Vampiro, the guy who had the terrible match we watched with David Flair and Crowbar on Sold Out <laughs> 15 years after that. Like, you know, if you would have told me that's who Pentagon's wrestling, I'd be like, why are they wasting this? But it turned out to be one of my favorite matches ever. Yeah, I mean, the basic story is Vampiro is the fucking old warrior coming back for one fight. And he's trying to just prove that he's still kind of the guy. And he gives everything he can. He ends up losing. And it's brutality. There's light tubes. There's flaming tables. And I love the... Uh, I was just going to say, I love how, you know, when the match starts, Pentagon's whooping his ass. Like, Vampiro, it goes to commercial, and they're like, Vampiro's hurt. Like, he's not going to be able to continue. And when it comes back, he just... It's like... The, uh, he flips the switch and Vampiro's going at him doing moves off the top rope he looks like he can barely move but then he'll like bust out a move and you're like where did that come from yeah. um, the best yeah, thing about it's, it's it was yeah, the best thing is this crowd we talked about this crowd before this crowd was into this shit yep uh, again we, we have the fin- uh, we have a flaming table here at the finish to uh, finally put Vampiro down and it's this crowd is just, like I said, they dig this match so much. And the big post-match angle is Vampiro demanding that Pentagon break his arm. Pentagon's like, well, that's fine. I'm all about breaking an arm. So <laughs> he, he did, and then Vampiro... The big revelation is that Vampiro is the master that had been teased all season long. Yeah, and it's one of those where... I think it's a fantastic, you know, twist. Uh, the crowd reaction is great. Like, they zoom in on that one lady. I still have that gift saved, and I use it whenever something shocking happens. Like, she turns around, and she turns to the guy behind them, like, what just happened? And the guy is, like, in tears, clapping, like, this is nuts. And it's just, it's really good stuff. Uh, like I said, tremendous uh, piece of business. Done doing the Cerro like, together. The pose was cool while Vampiro's, like, arm is dangling because it's broken. Um, there was, like... Coming out of this, this was the most the thing I was most excited for in season two, the way that they would portray the Pentagon Vampiro relationship. Um, so yeah, just I loved everything about that whole segment. I, I remember when I first watched this, I was not like a huge fan. Like I thought it was fine. Mm-hmm. I, I just I remember I just I don't I don't know. I guess it didn't click with me at the time. And I don't know if it's because I've just gone back and watched it and I'm appreciating it more. I like it much better now than I did when I first watched it. I can admit, I, I think it's like you said, that beginning portion when it looks like Vampiro is dead and then he yeah. does make the comeback. And I always, I always appreciate the, um, the warrior coming back for one last fight story. Yeah. And it, you, it works yeah. really well. And like we've, we've, we've talked about a lot over the years. Pentagon is so fucking good. He's so good. Like, the dude only spoke Spanish and was, like, cutting the, some of the best promos in wrestling in, like, 20... On Lucha Underground in 2015, 2016. Yeah, it's, like, the weird... It's, like, it's so weird because in 2015 and 16, he's what Asuka is in 2020. We have no yeah. clue what the fuck Asuka's saying. She's probably giving me a lovely dumpling recipe for all the fuck <laughs> I know. But, I mean, she is the most goddamn entertaining thing on the mic and whole company right now. Yeah, it's literally, like, there's a... I remember... When she was feuding with Becky at the start of the year, there was a point where she came out and said something and just started laughing. And someone tweeted it and was like, I don't know what she said, but I'm pretty sure Becky just got roasted. And that's exactly what it was. 
whatever she said, her and Kyrie Sane were the only two who knew, and they were like, this is hilarious. It's so good. But yeah, you're right. I mean, P- Pentagon would go out there, and like, the best thing about Pentagon in these promos was he has such a stage presence, the way like he yeah. struts when he talks, and it's just like the overall stuff. It's like when, um, it's like when we watch New Japan, Kev, we have no clue what Tanahashi's saying when he gives one of those awesome post-match promos and he's all yeah. fired up and air guitaring. But it's the way he controls the ring and walks around and everything. And that's what Pentagon does because he has those... He has those, mannerisms The and mannerisms such. and the um, the change in pitch and tempo in his voice and when he gets angry yeah. and then he brings it back down and... Yeah, it's just, it's all those little things, and all I could think of was, like, you know, if I understood Spanish, this is probably the greatest fucking promo I've ever heard, but but I don't care, because it's awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep, and it's funny, because he still, to this day, like, barely says anything in English. But he's Like, you know he has to speak it, but he's like, nah, I'm just gonna keep talking in Spanish. Yeah. What's the thing? It's like, he kind of really doesn't, because he's so over. Yeah, uh, he really doesn't have to. I mean, I'm pretty sure... He'll say like a few words, but for the most part, even in tech, like him and Phoenix still mostly talk, uh, speak Spanish. Yeah. Listen, man, I watch Kanachan TV. I know Oscar can speak English well enough. I don't oh, want yeah. her to talk English on TV, though. Mm-hmm. Just she, leave her doing what she's doing. Yeah, she's adorable as shit talking in English, but I'd rather hear angry Japanese ranting. Yeah, she, like, it's, it's one of the best things about her where she just yells randomly in Japanese. And you're like, this is cool, but also I'm a little scared. So we had, next up was our Gift of the Gods match, which the gimmick in this match was everybody was fighting for these medallions. They were ancient Aztec medallions. And everybody involved in this match, Big Rick, Aerostar, Bengala, uh, King Cuerno, Sexy Star, Jack Evans, and Phoenix all had a medallion. And they put it into this large championship belt at the start of the match. And the winner of this match was going to win this giant belt, which guaranteed them a world title shot. But it wasn't a money in the bank kind of deal. As Kevin brought up, Dario's a fucking promoter, goddammit. Mm-hmm. And you had to give him at least a one-week notice, uh, which they would later get rid of. But anyway, you had to give him <laughs> a one-week notice to promote the match, and then you could challenge for the championship. So you have quite the, the collection of talent here. Phoenix wins the match. Uh, 12 minutes and uh, about 12 seconds, I believe. And it's, it's a fun match that I enjoyed. I um yeah. it's not like great. They they do some fun spots. It's um it's kind of weird though. Cause you got like Big Rick in there. And <laughs> Marty the Moth gets involved because he's trying to kill Sexy Star and he gets his ass beat again. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. It's that's classic Marty. It's crazy to think that he ended up the you know becoming Lucha Underground champion at one point. Oh Christ! And I forgot we got Delavar Davari. Yeah, he. I watched it and I was like, I forgot he was a thing here. Yeah, so it was fucking Sean Devari arriving to attack Big Rick, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, um, I don't know. Like, like you said, this was, uh, you know, for me it was a fun match. It's one of those, we're going to throw six or seven people in and just have them do spots for ten minutes or whatever, and that worked. You know, sometimes you need that on a show. Uh, you know, we've had the hardcore match, we've had the the big tag, um, the six-person tag. We had the crazy brawl for the the false county where you you know want to have a spot fest in there too. Um, Aerostar's dive was you know typical Aerostar at this point. Uh, back then it was fresh, a crazy mix of talent. You know you had so many different kind of characters and wrestlers. Um, I did like there was a 
like a little preview of the Marty Martinez, uh, Melissa Santos like storyline because when he runs after he gets dance kicked, he goes like next to her and she's already creeped out by him, um, which I thought was kind of cool. But yeah, everybody played their roles well, and Phoenix was the right choice. And the match where he cashes in on Lil Mertes is another like uh, phenomenal match uh, in season two. Yeah, um, there was a um. A medallion match back on episode 27 of this season, which I thought was way better. But, I mean, this is fun for what it is. And like uh, Kevin said, a little diversity on the card, adding some uh, stuff in there. And it was fun. And, yeah, as you mentioned, the uh, the Phoenix cash-in works really well. And him him and Mil, Mil Muertes had such a great feud and chemistry in Lucha Underground because you had the... Uh, Oh, what, what grave the Grave Consequences? Yes, thank you. I was trying yes. to think of the name. The, the, the Grave Consequences matches, the title match thing. They just they did a lot of good stuff with those guys, and it's uh, just a lot of fun to work back. And the funny thing was, is like, Mil Muertes was a dude who was like, I was like really on him coming into this because I had seen him in like, in like Trip Way and in uh, TNA and stuff. Yeah, Judas Macias. Yeah, and then like he was so much better in Lucha Underground. And that was also before his knees got totally fucking shot too, but he was a ton of fun. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. And uh, again, the the Katrina factor, I think we have to throw in on that one. Sure, yeah. Because yeah, she was sure. a big part of that act. And then we got a no DQ match between Blue Demon Jr. and Tejano. <laughs> and uh, Blue Demon Jr., I forget exactly how, you may remember, he had inherited the crew, who were now wearing suits because I guess they're a professional crew now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Melissa Santos had announced via envelope that this was a no-DQ match on the orders of Dario Cueto because of uh, Blue Demon Jr.'s legendary status. Yeah, um, I... Did not understand, like, uh, I mean, this was the feud that I just what, could not get interested in at all. Yeah, it was weird. They worked, let's see here, they had like a three minute match, and yeah. it's like a no DQ match. And I get what they're trying to do, but my first thing was, and I know Lucha Underground wasn't like technically traditional professional wrestling, but. You just had the Sierra Miedra match, the no fear match earlier in the show with all this bullshit. You don't need another similar stipulation match on the same show. Especially because it really didn't help this match. Because it was bad. <laughs> like, the crew tried to get involved, they kind of failed. And we got chair shots and, you know, Blue Demon Jr. pinned him with like a foot on his chest and it's like... Yay. Okay. Yeah, I can't really... Like, honestly, I watched it, and I already kind of forgot what happened because it's the one bad thing on this show, I feel like, on both nights. But at least it's only, like, five minutes of total, like, of the of the total show entrances and everything. Yeah. My, my whole thought was, it's like, you're going to go to the fucking trouble of using Blue Demon Jr. on your big show of the year and... This is all you're going to do. Now, granted, Blue Demon Jr. wasn't really good still at the time. But I'm thinking, I'm like, if you're going to try to put him over as a big deal, like, I don't know. I was just maybe hoping for a little something more. <laughs> but Yeah, I, did. 
and I went when I went back and uh, I tried to get other people into Lucha Underground, and they would watch like the first episode. I think it was uh, Chavo versus oh, um, yes, Blue Demon, and Blue it's Demon. like, and then you got to hear Matt Striker go Blue Demon, like he would say it so weird always, and I was like, this is not how you get people interested in this. Yeah, Matt Striker was always the white dude on the local news. <laughs> that uh, you know, they'd sit there and they'd be like, the the, uh, the suspect is in company. His name is Miguel Rodriguez. Yeah, you know, and it's like you are so fucking white. Just say Rodriguez, okay? <laughs> Nobody you expects you to be hard. extra fucking Latino. We can see you are milk toast fucking white. <laughs> yeah, if you would have if he would have just called him Blue Demon Junior, no one would have batted an eye. I I hate local news. It's like, they, like I said, they always want to fucking like. Any name that is, you know, Hispanic or what, or like fucking Asian, they always have to put like extra stank on it to try to pronounce it. And it's like a hundred times worse than yeah. if they would just say it normally. You know, it's, I could like, I could just imagine the news, like, like the local news, like if New Japan would be coming, like when they did the US stuff, like, oh yes, the New Japan came down. Hiroshi Tanahashi! I mean, <laughs> it's like you are a 40 year old white woman. Don't do that. But that was always Matt Stryker to me. Like, the Blue Demon thing as you brought up is like, yeah, he was like, oh, and the legendary Blue Demon Jr. It's like, what? Yeah, it's like you don't have to call him, you know, Blue Demon Jr. Like, you don't have to do that. And, like, he wouldn't do it with, like, almost anyone else. It was just, like, certain people. Yeah, Matt Stryker was, like I said, really fucking weird as an announcer here. Yeah. The main event is the, the Lucha Underground title match. Our champion, Prince Puma. Whatever happened to that fucking guy? Uh, <laughs> facing off with uh, Milm worked as with the lovely Katrina. And this was a basically a there must be a winner match. And it was, uh, with all honesty, kind of another lazy way of saying, we're going no disqualification again, boys. Pretty much, yeah. Um, There's a lot of that on this show. Yeah, which, I mean, it's all right because these guys made it work. Um, Milton Muertes decided he wanted to be in the Attitude Era during this match because Prince Puma at one point goes for a suicide dive and he fucking dies because Milton Muertes hits a fucking Grand Slam with a chair shot. He absolutely murders this young man. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it's I, I do think that even though he like destroyed him with it, it was done in a safer way so that it's not like the Benoit one at Royal Rumble 2001. Yeah. Like you can tell he takes it mostly on the shoulder, uh, which if you're going to do that spot, that's the way to yeah. do it. And I'm watching it again. He doesn't like swing all the way through, but he looks like he yeah. kills him. It looked, it's one of those things where Lucha Underground knew how to like produce it in a way that it looked great. Yeah. So anyway, the, these guys have a hell of a main event here. Um, again, I thought Moon Muertes did really, really well in Lucha Underground. He's a guy, like I said, I wasn't overly impressed with before Lucha Underground, but I enjoyed a lot of what he did in Lucha Underground. Um, Prince Puma, again, as you guys should probably know, is Ricochet, who obviously an amazing ath- athlete. And um, he did really well in the mask gimmick, which was, you know, people were always like weirded out that he was doing the mask gimmick, but he was great at it. Um, yeah. Will Muertes fucking survives everything. He kicks out of the 630, and it's just... What's good is like they protected the shit out of the six thirty throughout. Yeah, the like season. I don't think anybody kicked out of it until Mill. Yeah, and then like Puma actually survived the flatliner and Spear, and it's like they had protected all of this stuff up until this point. 
So it's one of those things, and you know, Kevin and I have talked about when we review big shows, whether it be a, a WrestleMania or a Wrestle Kingdom, it's like, you can do finisher kickouts as long as they're largely protected throughout the year. Like, I don't want to see any, I don't care if anybody kicks out of Cur- Seth Rollins' curb stomp right now, because I saw Bray Wyatt kick out 18. Yeah, or, you know, like, <clears throat> sorry, um, when Cena was doing his open challenge for the U.S. title, like, those matches were fun. But you almost knew, unless you were like Zack Ryder, he wasn't beating you on the first AA because that's a move that people had kicked out of a ton. At this point, uh, Destino, you know the first Destino Naito hits is not going to end the match. Yeah, especially... No matter how hard Kevin Kelly yells. Yeah. Well, the thing is, especially if it's that little short short one. Oh, for sure, yeah. Because like, if he hits that one, Kevin Kelly will be like, Destino! And the, oh, we get to that too. Yeah, you don't buy until Kevin Kelly goes full fucking La Ligra soccer on you. <laughs> you know, and that's what made, like, um, whenever Okada would have, like, a Wrestle Kingdom main event, and, like, I think only Tanahashi, Naito, and, like, Kenny Omega had kicked out of the Rainmaker at that point. And, you know, it was a big deal when Omega kicked out of it uh, because I think those, you know, Tanahashi and somebody else were, like, the only two or something. So, it's, it's you know, High Fly Flow usually doesn't do it on the first uh Shot either. I think the most protected move in New Japan is still the bad luck fall. Unfortunately, <laughs> that is a wrap. But um, yeah, it's um, they do a good job down the stretch of selling these kickouts of these finishers, and both guys kind of being shocked and frustrated. Um, it had a really great closing stretch, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we get the big title change here at the end after about se- almost eighteen minutes. Um, yeah, and it's um these guys knew how to work well together. Mil Muertes was fucking motivated in this match. Prince Puma was fucking awesome. And yeah. uh, the gimmick at the end was Katrina giving uh, P- Prince Puma the lick of death, which was her deal throughout the season. Uh, again, Kevin, a great crowd for this. Yeah, um, this is... good. I was just going to say, Mill had been built up so well throughout the season. You know, even though he lost a Grave Consequences match, he came back and... He's just been built up so very well that this title change and everything made sense. It worked well. Like you said, they did the finisher kickouts, and they had a big closing stretch with a lot of drama, but it never went overboard. Sometimes you watch a match, and you're like, okay, I get it. You kicked out of, like, seven finishers, and, you know, I get what you're going for, but this felt natural and not like they were trying too hard. Exactly. And again, it, it didn't overstay its welcome. It has a nice run time. I mean, when you're run at like 20 minute time frame, you can do a lot of great stuff in 20 minutes. And God knows we've beaten the drum on that. Yeah. Um, and oh my God, I'm still beating the drum. And again, before anybody ever says, well, New Japan. No, listen, I've said it to everybody. <laughs> There's nothing more than I would love for New Japan to come back. And in the first big main event, Naito work a 15 minute fucking spirited main event just to throw everybody off. Yeah, it doesn't have to be 30 all the time. And it's a case where I get it in some cases, like, uh, you know, Will Ospreay Shingo. I didn't think that needed to be 33 minutes, but I get that it's the culmination of a tournament. You might want to make it a long match. You know, G1 finals have been going 30 for the past few years. But, like, I think it was after Okada dropped the title that he was a Tai Chi. He wrestled for, like, 30 minutes. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you working 30 with Tai Chi? Like, end it with a Rainmaker, like, 13. Go home. Yeah, stay like, in that 15-minute window. We saw you can drop four-star matches into G1 going 15. I mean, geez. That's part of why I like the G1 so much. It's, you know, you can't go overboard, really. Some matches still try to, but for the most part, you're going to get in and out within, like, 20 minutes. Like, 
do that, you know? And now Okada's had like two months off, so he's going to come back working 70 minutes. I know. <laughs> I need to knock, Gato, I need to knock off some rust. Do you mind if Taichi and I go about 73? <laughs> so when he got booked against Taichi, I remember I specifically was saying, this is good. You know, the guy's been working 30, 40 minute matches for like five years straight. Let him take some time off. You know, Taichi's a, he's not a guy who's going to, um, overwork you or you know you have to have a hard hitting match with you can have a nice breezy match with him no Okada will try to go 25 with Yano I know <laughs> hey but I have confidence Yano might make that work <laughs> yeah true Yano is great Okay, so anyway, yeah, um, I thought this was pretty great as a main event. Um, they had an invested crowd. Like you said, it didn't overstay. I thought they sold the finish stuff really well, the um, surviving of the finishers, the shock of it and all. Um, I thought Katrina was really great in ringside. And um, I just, I really, really enjoyed this main event. I, I, I love it. Yeah, fantastic match. It made my top 100 matches of 2015 list. Um just really good stuff and a perfect way to end the season. So, and uh, the ending, uh, we get an ending cinematic of Black Lotus and Dario Cueto packing up his office supplies and cash so that they can leave and get on the run. Well, Matanza is in the back of the limo with them. Phoenix gets into his fly car and leaves. King Cuerno is uh, chasing behind them. Yeah, at first, sorry, I was going to say, at first when I, you know, I forgot about it and I saw the guy with the hatch, you know, in the car after him, and I was like, this didn't go anywhere, why is Tejano following him? And then I remembered (laughs) King Cuerno, like, would wear the hat and he was, like, hunting him and stuff, and it was was good stuff, that uh, Cuerno Phoenix feud. That's right. Now, Marty DeMoth was still pissed that everybody thought he was a joke, so he had kidnapped Sexy Star and teased his sister coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which did happen uh, as cheerleader Melissa played Mariposa. Uh, mm-hmm. Havoc, Angelico, and Ivelisse mounted up on their uh, their motorbikes and uh, left, vowing to win the titles back. Mm-hmm. Aristar and Drago uh, had a lovely Lucha Boy handshake and made a pact to save the universe and had dramatic and mystical exits, <laughs> which was just amazing. <laughs> like, Drago basically turns into a dragon and flies away, and Aristar flew away because he's a crazy astronaut man. Uh, time traveling crazy astronaut exactly. man. <laughs> uh, we have Pentagon and Vampiro um, leaving together. The man in the white hood... Um, that we had seen throughout the season, puts on Dragon Azteca's mask, so he took the mask of a dead man, and then he paints a giant question mark on the Lucha Underground billboard, which was the big tease for Rey Mysterio. Yeah. And then we see uh, Dario Cueto standing as the lights go out in the temple behind him, and he smiles, and we get the big to-be-continued, because there was no guarantee we were getting season two. Yep. And I always like when shows throw down the gauntlet like that. Um, I remember Chuck is one of my favorite shows, and they didn't know if they were going to get a season three, and they ended season two with it to be continued. And I'm like, that's just telling the network, give us our episodes, damn it. That's right. Uh, so, Kev, night two, what are you thinking out of ten? Any final thoughts? Um, out of ten, is I honestly, I'd go nine and a half or ten. Like, I don't do that often, but I love Ultima Lucha Night 2. And when 2015, you know, at the end of that year when we did our awards and stuff, um, I picked this as my show of the year over Wrestle Kingdom 9, even though I consider Wrestle Kingdom 9 an all-time, like, great show. So that just tells you how much I like Ultima Lucha Night 2. I know the Chavo, I mean, the Blue Demon Tejano match is terrible. But like I said, it takes up a total of maybe five minutes on the show. 
the Vampiro Pentagon is some is one of my favorite matches ever. Puma Mortez is phenomenal. Uh, I really enjoy the Gift of the Gods like Spot Fest. Uh, uh, um, El Patrol Mundo is really good stuff. I love all the the storylines going on in Lucha Underground and that montage to end it and. It's just it's all just the like complete package of a wrestling show for me. Yeah, it is. It's it's so much fun to go back and watch this. And um, I goddamn, I miss this promotion so much. I miss but, it so much. Um, I, I I really enjoyed night two. I enjoy it more than night one. Um, I'm probably still around an eight on it. I think that's what I want that's at fair. the time. And I think um, I think honestly, my biggest problem with this show is. Even though on a watchback, I like Vampiro and um, the Vampiro match a lot more than I did the first mm-hmm. time around. Um, my big problem with this show is something that plagued the Lucha Underground at, the longer they kind of went on is they really, they created this really fun universe and did a lot of cool things that were different. And this show to me felt like they were relying on the worst of North American wrestling crutches a little too much. The, um, the no DQ mm-hmm. stuff, the kind of the changing of things, and like, because like the main event is essentially no DQ because there must be a winner, and yeah. then you're doing like that. You do a no DQ match. It's like it's only a three minute match, but why does that need to be no DQ? Yeah, and then that, you got the Cerro Miro and you yeah. got the False Con anywhere, and they all kind of are along the same line, even yeah. if the matches themselves were different. And it was very uncharacteristic of Lucha Underground at the time because they were really knocking out their own niche at the time. And it's like, it was so appreciated that I kind of hated seeing them lean into the typical North American stuff so much. And they could have just gone like, you know, a, t- a traditional ECW route where like most of the matches didn't need to even like, you could have just made them all, not all no DQ, but like be relaxed on the rules in general because it's an underground fight club basically. You know, like you could have just kept it in that grittier tone so that you don't have to overdo it when it comes to ref bumps and booking it as a no DQ match specifically and stuff. Yeah, I, and I kind of wish that they would have just, just stayed away from that a little bit because I think that, like, it was very important for Lucha Underground, I thought, to have that identity of theirs to be different because, number one, if they had, I mean, unfortunately, there were many reasons the company didn't grow and the show didn't grow, and that's because. They couldn't get that big TV deal in Mexico. They couldn't get expanded international coverage. They never properly merchandised, and then they never properly tried to do live events. So when you get all that together, there was a lot of reasons it didn't grow, unfortunately. But I think if they were going to grow, they needed to stay away from, again, the kind of basic North American tropes, because if people wanted to watch that, they would just keep watching WWE or TNA or ROH, because you could see that all the time. And to me, Lucha Underground feeling so different with the cinematic Grindhouse B-movie feel and the fun stories and the wrestlers you couldn't... I mean, you could see some of them other places, but largely the gimmicks you couldn't see anywhere else at the time because you weren't seeing Mil Muertes work around the horn and you weren't seeing Prince Puma everywhere. Yeah. So it's just like, I thought that they had something really unique, but Kev, I loved Lucha Underground simply for the fact that, again... Not only was it different, but I felt it was something I needed in my routine at the time. Because um, I, I love adding new things as I go on. But the fact that this was so much different from your basic wrestling weekly TV show 
for as wacky as it was, but I loved it because I loved Dario Cueto. I liked Matanza eating people's faces. You know, just all the wacky shit they did. And even though season four ends in, uh, kind of limps it to a close, I still love the shit out of uh, pretty much all of it. Yeah, like you said, there's season four stuff that I don't probably ever see myself rewatching. But I do think that the first three seasons are just so much fun. It's nowhere near perfect television, but it's a blast. You know, you can go in there, you don't. You get engaged in the characters, but you still don't have to take it too seriously. Wacky stuff will happen. There's fun overarching storylines. There's development through these characters over, you know, time. Um, I would have preferred if, like, you know, there's things that you obviously would change. I think Pentagon should have gotten the title sooner. I didn't really need a sexy star title run. Um, But overall, it's a lot of good. They had so much talent. Like, this show ends... And this is still before they had Rey Mysterio for a season. This is before they brought in uh, Dante Fox or uh, Killshot. You know, Marty Martinez hadn't even fully become, you know, like what he would eventually become. So it's just really cool to look back and see how much talent was there and the creative minds behind it. It was just so much fun. It really was. And uh, a long time ago, like, um, I think... I think it was Jeremy and I, we kind of did like a a look back at um, Ultima Lucha 4. Not so much a full review, but we were really talking about um, where everybody from that show ended up. And it's just, it's crazy when you look back on, like you said, just the level of talent this promotion had overall. And how it opened, like it opened doors up big, for, especially for Phoenix and Pentagon at the beginning. For sure, yeah. Because these were guys that were killing it in Mexico, and then they got on Lucha Underground. They were getting booked like everywhere in the U.S. They were getting big fee because they were on Lucha Underground, and um, it it allowed them to like really shine. And part of the reason that uh. This is like why uh, fucking El Hijo de Vikingo can't get a fucking visa because Triple A is terrified that someone's going to steal him. Yeah, absolutely. They, they don't want him working in the U.S. like anywhere unless it's like, well, we'll let you work a Impact TV taping and that's about it because we don't want anybody taking you. Yeah, it's, you know, think of, you know, Phoenix and Pentagon would not be who they are today or would not be, you know, anywhere near that if it wasn't for Lucha Underground. It's rare that you see somebody there who, even on smaller scales, you know, and Helico and Jack Evans are in AEW now. And it's, there's, looking at the roster, there's maybe like 10 people who didn't get signed in major other places. Like Bill Burns says, but he was pretty old. Even Lee doesn't have like a major job. Even Son of Havoc, you know, was on NWA before everything got stopped. So it's just like they're popping up all over the place, the talents from Lucha Underground. And what's funny is, too, uh, Lucha Underground was kind of the uh, the home for the wayward uh, Tough Enough contestants, man. <laughs> it really Eve, was. Lee's Marty the Moth, who was probably going to win that season before he got injured, he was on. Even Johnny Mundo. Yeah, <laughs> Son of Havoc. I mean, just, it's crazy. But uh, Chelsea Green later on is reclusive. Oh, yeah, I forgot <laughs> she was there. Yeah, so it's uh, it's really cool. But, yeah, there's so many people. You, you brought up, you know, A.R. Fox was on there. Um, mm-hmm. Shane Strickland was Killshaw. I mean, just. He was so good, too. He was. And, oh, my God, that fucking match those two dudes had. When oh, they tried Fox to kill and Killshaw. Pretty much they tried to murder each other on TV for our enjoyment. I believe that's, like, the most violent match ever aired on, like, U.S. wrestling TV. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Like, it, it's it's up there. So, 
Um, but yeah, tremendous stuff. It's fun to look back on um, Lucha Underground. Kev, I'm glad you wanted to talk about it because I know you greatly enjoyed it at the time as well. And it's um, again, it's something I personally miss a lot. Yeah, and it's so interesting because you know it used to be it was on Netflix for a little while, but it's not there anymore, so it's hard to find. Um, I used Tubi TV. I don't really use it for anything else, but you can watch it without a subscription, and it, or you get a few commercials, but. Overall, to, you can still enjoy all the, you know, all Lucha Underground there. So it's worth checking out if you haven't yet. Well, there you go, guys. You can still find it places, and yeah, it's um, ah, yeah, a fun time to look back on, Kev. But um, unfortunately, it is gone, and we uh, have to leave the memories alone. Yep, classic uh, Ric Flair retirement music. That's right. So, uh, Kev, before we go, throw out your Twitter and the Patreon so everybody can follow you. Uh, yeah, the Twitter is um, at the uh, at the Kevsta. That's T A G underscore K E V S T A A A, and the Patreon is the same thing. Patreon.com slash the Kevsta. I've been doing my brand split wars, reviewing Raw versus SmackDown, starting with the draft in 2002. Uh, I'm about five weeks into that, and I started my five the top 500 matches of the 2010s list. And uh, that's good. That's been a lot of fun to do so far. So some good stuff coming on there if you want to uh, support and help out. There you go. Throw th- th- Kev some money. Read on those uh, hundreds of matches of the uh, 2010s. And uh, mm-hmm. again, the uh, the brand split wars, the ruthless aggression era, something not covered by a lot of people. It's uh, as we uh, we've talked about before. It kind of gets uh, overlooked for the Monday Night Wars. So, it does. Uh, Kev, I think you're smart trying to do something different there. But uh, well, thank you. I thank you again for joining me. It's a it's a fun time as always, and I'm I was glad to talk some Lucha Underground. Of course, yeah. Maybe next. Uh, I don't know what we have planned or if we have anything set up, but maybe it'll be a New Japan show next. We haven't done one of those, so that might not be a bad idea. We can look into something like that. Yeah, we will converse and just uh, yeah. Again, we're just trying to throw some fun retro stuff your way and. Uh, I know Lucha Underground was something that Kevin and I both loved, and I know a lot of people, whenever some, like a lot of the cinematic stuff has been coming up in uh, wrestling lately, and I keep seeing people go, you know, all this reminds me of is how I miss Lucha Underground when it was done really well. Yeah, it was done as good as it's ever been done. Like, and I know, like, you know, like, I, I like the Boneyard match a lot. I thought they did a great job with that. But yeah. Like, and people were like, yeah, the Boneyard match was really fun and all, but it's like, it just made me miss Lucha Underground. And <laughs> I, I hear you guys. I, um, I agree. So, um, but yeah, I want to thank Kevin as always for his time. And that's going to wrap up this portion of the show. You guys hang on and, uh, we will carry on with the closing section. All right, joining me for the closing segment of this uh, edition of the show, we're talking Dark Side of the Ring, which means Jerome Kisan is joining me. Jerome, how are you, my friend? I, I feel like you put a little bit of emphasis on the uh, Kisan part because I am, in fact, French, and the episode that we are talking about tonight, uh, was uh, a lot of it was in French, so thank you for the, uh, the emphasis on the Kisan part. Hey, man, I took four years of French. French one, French one, French two, and French two. I know my French. Is that is that how the South Carolina school system works? Excuse me, I went to school in Pennsylvania. I was just a poor high school student, that's all. I, was, I didn't become a good student until I went to college, ironically enough. And I think part of that is because I had some really shitty teachers. Like, my, my senior English teacher tried to fail me. Because, like, they made this thing my senior year to where you were allowed to, if you had a research paper that applied to more than one class, you could turn it into more than one class. 
So I had one for my music theory class, which was the same criteria as the English class. Turned it in, and basically the bitch didn't understand it, tried to fail me, so my music teacher had to get a bad for me. It was like, listen, he's like, this is like an excellent paper. He's like, you can criticize the English portion all you want, but content-wise, it's great. So I ended up with a C, and like, high school career was basically a 2.0. Graduated, I left college, and you know, when I, when I was done with college and everything, I had like a 3.4, including I aced all my English classes with A's. So when I got that report card, I sent it to her with a Polaroid and me flipping her the middle finger because I'm an adult. And did she, did she ever say something like, Larry, you're never going to amount to anything. You're never going to be a writer. And then you would just stick it in her face every day by writing about like the WWE financials on a daily basis. I mean, you've really showed her. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, basically she, she told me, she's like, I can't imagine you getting anywhere with writing. Thank goodness you're good at music. Like, well, uh, fuck you, bitch. Here, here we are, and here we are. You, uh, do you even do anything with music now, or is it you're just you're just a writer? I'm just a writer now, man. I mean, um, for a while, I, I did the substitute teaching things. I was um freelancing and uh, teaching marching band stuff during marching band seasons, and did the choir director gig for a while, and then um when I just realized I had too many jobs because at one point before I was like full time at four one one. I was doing like reviews and columns and getting some money and then I was working at a Greek restaurant and I was also the choir director. So I eventually had to pare down on stuff so I could like see my family. So uh eventually quit the Greek restaurant, stayed with the church for a while, and then when we moved over towards Charlotte, uh the choir director job was done, so it's just been four one one. Well, Larry, this is uh this is all fascinating insight and I really hoped that you graded your choir and your marching band using star ratings. I wish, I really wish I should have, but, uh, no, but we, uh, as you mentioned, uh, we have a French connection tonight. We are talking dark side of the ring, the assassination of Dino Bravo. I mean, it sounds so much more important when you say he was assassinated. It makes him sound like he was a, he was a great political leader. Well, I mean, they tried to frame him as a great man at the beginning. And, uh, I'm not, did. and I'm not judging. I'm not saying he wasn't, but I mean, basically the beginning is they put over Dino Bravo as an icon in Quebec, the Hulk Hogan of Montreal who worked all the big names. And then things turn because they talk about him living in a da- in the dangerous world of organized crime, which on March 10th, 1993 led to him being found dead shot 11 times in what was called a mafioso-styled execution, Jerome. And if you've ever watched an episode of The Sopranos, I think you have somewhat of an idea of what that might look like or any of your favorite mafioso filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, those kinds of people. So it's a, it's a really unfortunate story, of course. I mean... You know, all week on on Twitter, I've been seeing the jokes about, you know, smoke a pack in honor of Dino Bravo this week and things like that. But I think what this documentary really gets across is that it's it's a really sad tale because like so many people in wrestling, he gets himself involved in a major promotion. He has years where he is very, very successful. But like so many other people of that time period, he did not save his money. He lived a particular lifestyle. And then in order to maintain that lifestyle, he had to he had to be a, an active participant in organized crime. So 
there are some tragic elements to this story. And I think just when you think, well, Vince McMahon's going to get a week off from just totally being buried. I mean, there's, there was even more burying of Vince McMahon on this episode, just like there has been uh, with the exception of the new Jack episode. I mean, every, every, every episode has certainly had a Vince McMahon aspect to it that has not been positive. And I'm I'm surprised that Vin, uh, New Jack didn't drop a Vince McMahon's a motherfucker somewhere in there just because he's New Jack. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been funny if Dino Bravo did it, especially with that thick accent. Yeah. So um, we're joined on this episode by his daughter Claudia and his um, his widow, and uh, Claudia talks about her love for her father, going to shows as a child. Uh, historian Patrick Laprade, um, also joined the show. Patrick Laprade does a lot of good work. He's was involved with the HBO Andre the Giant thing. He has a new Andre the Giant book coming out. So he kind of digs into the, um, the Montreal scene in the eighties, how it was a hot territory and the, um, I mean, I don't want to put it rudely, but the claims that Dino Bravo was the biggest star and made everybody else stars. Your mileage may vary on that, but I think the thing that comes across to me is when I when I hear them talk about Dino Bravo and who he was in the Montreal, I see a guy who's like Gary Lawler. Gary Lawler is somebody who is not a national star, but if you live in Memphis and you He's the king of Memphis. He's the king of Memphis, as I well know, because I, I this is this is where I live. So Gary Lawler's presence is definitely felt in Memphis. And he is an icon in this territory, but He's not really a wrestling icon in other places. And I think that's what came across in the in the first 15 minutes or so is that Dino Bravo, yes, he is a legend in the Montreal system and, you know, kind of a local guy. But I don't I never saw him as this amazing wrestling talent. I think that, you know. He really, maybe he did not get the opportunity to shine, but I, I never was like, well, Dino Bravo is this all-time great worker who was very underappreciated by the WWF. And that, that certainly does not give any excuse to why he was assassinated by the mafia. But I think that it's always important to keep perspective when you're watching these documentaries and the way that certain people get put over in that, you know, Dino Bravo, I'm sure that he was a great father and I would never expect his daughter to say something negative about him because I don't like, especially with the man not being here. I don't, I just don't think that that's something that I would ever feel comfortable doing. So I, I, I certainly do not blame his daughter or the widow for, for not saying anything negative, but there, there seemed to be a sheen over this entire documentary and they, they really did not get critical about some aspects of Dino Bravo. They hinted at him having a temper and that's something that really wasn't dove into very much. You know, I, I don't know if this was ever proven, but I don't understand how you do a Dino Bravo 45-minute documentary and not get into any potential steroid use. I mean, not to not to be that guy, but but just look at him. Come on. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, to, to go back a little earlier on your point, yeah, I mean, Dino Bravo, I mean, yeah, to be to be fair, he was a huge territorial star. He was big in Montreal. He did draw crowds. And yeah, I mean, just with the look of Dino Bravo, the Power Man gimmick and everything, and then the allegations of him having a bad temper, you would have thought that they might have dove into the steroid thing a bit, but they did not. 
So. No, they didn't, and it's really, really unfortunate. So Jacques Rougeau joins the show, and he dives into his relationship with Dino Bravo. Talks about how Bravo made himself the big star as the booker, and that led to a lot of heat with the boys. Jacques admitted that they had a lot of issues, which led to him and Raymond eventually joining the WWF. During the time period where Vince was starting to cherry-pick all of the top stars from around the territories to start controlling the business. Jacques then says uh, he knew Vince eventually knew that he would need Dino to draw in Montreal, and that they were even teasing a Dino Bravo versus Hulk Hogan match, which they claim would have sold 40,000 tickets. But this event got canceled because WWF and Vince McMahon feared that Dino Bravo would be more popular than Hulk Hogan. And we certainly can't have that. I think on this podcast, I've talked about the idea that WWF is incapable of of dealing with real life. And I think this is just another example of that. I mean, how many times have they gone into Montreal specifically and even the rest of Canada and they've referred to it as Bizarro World because those crowds dare to cheer on WWE superstars who are not the the designated baby baby faces of choice. So it in no way surprises me that this is something that 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 occurred and would they have sold 40,000 tickets who knows but the idea that WWF just couldn't do a show like that with Hogan and Dino Bravo I mean it's it's absurd because it's like nobody's nobody cares it's the 1980s there's no internet nobody's gonna all of a sudden see Hulk Hogan as a heel because he got booed on a random house show in Montreal yeah, it's uh, it's really weird, but it's very WWF mindset. Yeah, it shows you Vince McMahon has not changed in 30 years. No, so they talk about Dino continuing on with the territory, um, but he lost the Rougeaus, he lost Haku, he lost Rick Martel, all to WWF, and he eventually started getting outclassed by the WWF in his own territory, which led to him giving in because he realized he had to, quote-unquote, support his family. And he left to the WWF as well, and they claim he got $300,000 a year guaranteed with incentives for up to a million. And again, I mean, if it's the wrestling business and you're talking about it, there's definitely a work element there. That seems like a lot of money for a Dino Bravo in the late 80s, but maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? I mean, we just we're never going to be able to verify that. We just at the end of the day, he was probably he had to be making a decent amount of money to afford the house that he had and to to purchase the things that he was able to purchase. He had to be making a a decent amount of of change in that company. I agree. I'm sure he was making good money. The other thing is he probably had the incentive portion of that deal was probably that he got a cut of the Montreal territory. Like when they ran yeah. live events there. So that would be my guess. Yeah, that, that that would seem to make sense. I mean, that's consistent with some of the other deals that they struck with some of the other Canadian territories, right? Didn't like Jack Tunney when he was running, when he ran his territory and he sold out. Yeah. Like he got a certain cut of the money and Stu Hart, I think, in Calgary and whatnot. Yep, exactly. That's, that's exactly what, uh, that was the Vince game plan back in the day. That's how he was able to get these, uh, well, for lack of a better word, steal these territories and all their talent. So, but uh, it is what it is. What it is. Dino Bravo goes to the WWF. He is paired with Dean, uh, Jimmy Hart, who Jacques Rougeau puts over big. 
Jimmy Hart joins the show, praising Dino Bravo, claiming he could do it all, saying uh, Dino climbed the card, and they start talking about something you mentioned, his lifestyle change. He bought a big house in an affluent neighborhood. He was buying expensive cars. There's even a story in there where he talked. They they talk about his daughter explains that he had bought this like really fancy sports car and told her that it was hers, and she was like fucking four. But he had bought this car for her and said, "This is going to be yours." So, yeah, he was living the extravagant lifestyle. I mean, I think this is pretty representative of what we see with a lot of WWF talent at this point, and even some of the NWA talent, in that they were living these lavish lifestyles, and nobody ever sat them down and said, well, you know, you don't have a pension plan, you don't have a 401k, what are you going to do once you retire? And, I mean, I don't know what kind of responsibility WWF ever has for that, but this this is a this is an uh, like I said an unfortunate all too familiar story of somebody who has this this rise and then a fall because you know Dino Bravo was never treated as a serious character he really never got into the main event and yes he did have flirtations with the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan in the in the very early nineties but otherwise he was he was in tag teams a lot and. He was kind of a jobber to the stars, and that's that's really what his purpose was. And there is a very limited shelf life, especially for someone like Dino Bravo, who, as we said, is not known for his for his work ethic and not somebody who a, a lot of smart marks liked. And I think for all those reasons, eventually the, the bubble was going to pop. And, I mean, it sucks and it's unfortunate, but it's a byproduct of just what kind of talent he had. You know, you go back to what kind of responsibility WWF would have had or WWE has with talent like that, and I'm not a big basketball fan. I'm not going to sit there and lie and tell you I watch a shit ton of basketball. Like, I watch some, but, um, like, one thing that has intrigued me lately is, like, I watch the Dan Patrick show every day, and um, they've he's talked a lot with basketball guys recently that one thing the league is considering is this, uh, this kind of G League at- Academy thing to where a lot of high school seniors can opt out of college and go straight to the G League, and part of that academy setting will not only be them being paid and um, playing in the G League, but they will also have life classes, learning how to balance a checkbook, open up your bank accounts, learning how to deal with real estate. Basically, all the shit that they need to learn when they're going to make millions of dollars that they would never learn in college because they're only there for six months anyway most of the time. And Larry, can I tell you something? And I'm saying this as somebody who teaches at a college university. So understand that I have some credibility when it comes to this. It will be more productive for those youngsters to go through a program like that and get that specific of of an education than it would be for them to go to college for six months to a year. And see, that's what I thought, too, because, again, you're – the 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 biggest problem you find with a lot of these guys is they have no idea how to financially plan. They don't understand taxes. They don't understand how real estate works. So if you actually take the time to teach them these things in a, like I said, it's been framed like every time I listen to it kind of as an academy setting. I think that that makes sense. Because again, like you're just, I, I always laugh when they talk about the, the quote unquote student athlete. That goes, again, for six months and does nothing and plays a season of basketball and bails because he's going to be on national TV. 
it is it is always funny to hear them talk about the concept of the student athletes, especially the way that some colleges and universities treat it. But Larry Zonka, I'm here to tell you that uh, the university that I work at, uh, Penny Hardaway, is the basketball coach. You know who Penny Hardaway is, oh, right? Oh, I, I know Penny, yeah. So I will tell you that he did not come to my classroom, but Penny Hardaway is the type of coach who will go in and make sure that his athletes are attending class. Well, and if he's him. And if he's not doing it, there are managers who are doing it for him. Good. So, so that, that's always impressed me as an educator. But as you were saying, I completely agree with this idea of the G League and this superstar team. It's going to destroy college basketball. But the NCAA is, I mean, you want to talk about the mafia, Larry, and this will probably be a good transition <laughs> point. The NCAA is a mafioso organization unto itself. It really is. Um, so back to Dino Bravo, Vince changes him from a Canadian hero to an anti-American blonde, which Dino was embarrassed by. His wife hated the die job. And uh, Jimmy Hart explains that one of Dino's problems was that he wasn't understood very well because of his vo- uh, broken English. He was uh, thoroughly devalued through a lot of losses. He got older. And he got phased out in 1992, and he started to get burnt out, and his contract expired, and that was it for his WWF run. Yeah, I mean, does Dino Bravo have, like, a truly great match in him in the WWF? I mean, you've reviewed just about every WWF show there is. Is there, like, a classic Dino Bravo match to watch, even? I, I honestly, and I don't say this to be mean, I cannot think of one. Okay. That's fair. Like I'm, I'm, and I'm not asking to be a dick. I'm just legitimately curious if I've just never seen it before. No, I, I, I can't think of one. And I, hey, there may be a great Dino Bravo match out there. I don't know, but I mean, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. So he's done after six years and has to find new work or change his lifestyle that he had become accustomed to. His wife chimes in talking about that uh, they were worried about finances. Dino went into survival mode, but he had connections in the mafioso and the Catoni family who was in control of Montreal at the time. And Dino was actually related to this family and was approached. uh, They frame him as naive going into this because he was a big guy. He could play the strong arm collector. And this is where they kind of talk about him having a temper where they talk about a story where Jacques Rougeau got drunk and harassed a Quebecer or a Nordiques hockey player, I think. And um, he called wrestling fake and Dino Bravo ended up kicking the shit out of the guy. I'm a little dubious of Jacques Rougeau just based on things that I've heard from other people and the way that they talk about him. Jacques Rougeau is not a very popular individual in the world of pro wrestling. Dynamite Kid talks specifically about Uh, just some of the interactions that he has had with him. And Kevin Steen and El Generico slash Sami Zayn, they have gone out of their way to speak very negatively about Jacques Rougeau. So I'm not going to say I didn't believe him, but I was a little bit dubious of some of the things that Jacques Rougeau has, has says because he's a known bullshitter, he's a known worker. So I don't know if the story is untrue, but... I don't know. I, de- I was definitely skeptical of a lot of things that Rougeau said. Although the one thing that he said about the way that Vince McMahon uses talent, that actually was spot on. That is probably one of the smartest things that I've ever heard somebody say about Vince McMahon. 
Fair enough. And I, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I, the first thing I heard of when Jacques started talking was all I could think of is all the times I heard Steen bury him in interviews. <laughs> Just, oh my God, yeah, so... Um, it's during this time where Dina's wife uh, starts sensing some trouble and a bad vibe. She thought it was a bad environment overall. And Jacques starts talking about um, Dino calling him one night so that they could have a meet, um, even though they weren't friends. Uh, the next morning, uh, Jacques was, um, he couldn't come that night, so he was going to go meet Dino the next day. But it was the next day that Dino was found dead in his living room in his uh, recliner. Shot 11 times, 7 in the head, and 4 to the body. Yeah, he um, he, he was dead. Yeah, I don't think anybody is going to be able to survive 11, uh, 11 bullets. And I think the documentary does a good job of just explaining and running that whole situation down because it seems like it's a bit murky. I think for obvious reasons, the family did not want to talk about it. So uh, it's, it was just really unfortunate, but you know, I think with, with any situation like that, it's really hard to talk about. And given that it's the mafia, especially nobody's going to want to come out and just start talking about, Oh, the mafia does this and the mafia does that. So I think that you're still left with a lot of questions even after that situation. And even by the end, but it's, it's really, it's just a really hard thing to talk about. It is, and it doesn't get any better because, you know, his wife obviously said she doesn't kind of add much other than saying it's difficult. She's the one who finds him dead, arriving home after midnight with their daughter, who is apparently at a ballet class, they said. Very late class. Uh, His wife finds him dead in the armchair, and they frame it like he looked like he was waiting for it because there was no sign of force entry, and it looked like the work of, quote, professionals so that is the mafioso tie and his his family is obviously shocked it makes major news but no one knows who did it and why and they claim he had no enemies and only friends yeah i mean (laughs) apparently he didn't have he didn't have enough friends i hate to disagree with the uh the widow and the daughter but yeah (laughs) It's like, it's not funny. I'm not trying to be a dick, but yeah, it's like, um, you're saying he had no enemies, but he was shot 11 times. Yeah, that's, that's not good. That's, there, there are some enemies. So, um, the speculation is that Dino let his killers in after his wife and daughter were gone. Police found a total of 17 bullet casings from two different guns. And the suspicion has turned to organized crime. Um, now, a lot of the new mafioso lived in the same area where Dino Bravo lived, and others in the, quote, business, two other men were killed close to his home in that area. And that is why police started looking for connections. Three days after his death, it is also reported that uh, $55,000 in contraband cigarettes were discovered. So this is something that I wish the documentary had done a better job of. Like, what is the cigarette situation in Montreal where the where contraband cigarettes are this popular? I, I think that's something that I wanted to see and hear from. And I know that there's no way this logically worked out because, of course, 
production on these documentaries probably overlaps, but it's almost as if the Quebec police saw the goofball that we saw in the Jimmy Snooker documentary <laughs> and decided not to participate in this documentary, even though there's no way that that is not feasible, that is not possible. But we did not get the Montreal uh, we did not get um, uh, the Mountie in this episode. We, yeah. we, well, we actually did get the Mountie, but we did not get an actual Mountie. We didn't get Barney LaFife. We did not get Barney LaFife. That is correct. That is his uh, his his non-union French cousin. That's right. Uh, I'm guessing without like you know trying to like sound like like I know too much, but my assumption is the cigarette issue was a taxation issue, and that the cigarettes became ungodly expensive. That is perhaps true. Cigarettes are increasingly expensive in the States as well, so it's something we might have to watch out for here, too. That's right. So uh, they talk about how smugglers ran out of the First Nation Indian reserves, and the cigarettes were big business. Dino was dealing into contraband cigarettes. People knew, but the only wrestler who really knew about this was Rick Martell, they say, who... Refused to be interviewed, but in 2007, which I believe was an RF shoot interview, Rick Martell spoke about his relationship with Dino Bravo and the Indians. And um, basically, they provided him cigarettes. The cocaine people in the area got upset because the cigarette business apparently got really big and they wanted a cut. So one of the uh, cocaine guys went to Dino and um, basically, they had cigarettes waiting in this warehouse, and the cocaine guy was supposed to get the cigarettes, and they stayed there for three days. And they got busted, they got seized, and the cocaine guy was not happy, and this is what led to issues between Dino and the cocaine guy. And I'm just going to say, when you're in with the mafioso and doing cigarettes, I think the only thing worse you could add to it is getting involved with the cocaine dealer. Yeah, and I'm a little concerned for Rick Martel because he did not participate in this documentary, but they showed some of that RF video footage, and I'm just hoping that we do not hear about Rick Martel's body being found somewhere in Montreal over the course of the next couple weeks. Someone added him on Twitter. like It was like, hey, at Rick Martel, why weren't you part of this Dino Bravo thing? Why were you refused to be interviewed? And Robert fucking retweeted and said, I think he had 11 good reasons not to. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm just going to say that in this specific case, Robert was correct. I mean, seriously, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, they showed footage of a past interview, but yeah, if I'm Rick Martell, I don't want fucking in on that shit. Stay as far away as humanly possible. Dina's wife rejoins us talking about that the police investigated, but there was no real follow-up. And, um... They they kind of feel that the person who killed uh, Dino was a friend in the mafia, and they didn't think that the Indians did it, but instead a possible rival, rival biker gang may have executed the contract because apparently the fine Indians on the reservation were not known for killing folks. I mean, this this kind of feels like Breaking Bad at certain points. It's like there's so many different drug lords and people involved that it's it's almost hard to keep track of it at certain points. And there is no doubt. The, the impression that I get is that Dino Bravo knew the people that he was letting into his house that night. And somehow either things went south or he did not expect it. But clearly this this is what happened. And it's just uh, it's a really, really sad story. 
So his wife uh, talks about becoming a widow at age 28 and having to raise her daughter on her own. Talks about giving away all of Dino's wrestling stuff. And they frame the whole situation as Dino going into, quote-unquote, the business out of desperation since the wrestling career was over. And that the uh, the stories about his death will always be out there. And as you said, the Quebec police refuse to be interviewed and comment. And because after 30 years, this is still technically an open case. I mean, how is this? Is is Bix going to have to go and investigate this one for him to get closed as well? Or how is this going to work? I don't know. We need somebody on it. And um, the kind of closing message is uh, Dina's wife says she still loves him and is thankful he gave her her daughter. Uh, the daughter hopes that uh, people rem- remember him fondly and wishes her father was here because he would have two grandchildren. Um, yeah, I, you know, you can't help but feel bad for the family. And I think that it's always a really hard thing for these episodes. When when you're dealing with the family, of course, it, it's there's always a certain level of, of sensitivity. I think the, what, what they've done a better job of this year is getting access to family members and talking about some of these situations because – even regardless of what you think of Dino Bravo professionally and in the ring, I mean, this was a man who did have a daughter and who had a wife that he was trying to take care of. And I do think it is important to always humanize these people. And that does not mean that we disnify their life and we look and we and we say nothing but positive things. But it is always important, I think, to have that perspective of just because you see Dino Bravo in one way that the people who is closest with are going to see him in a very different way. And a lot of people in this documentary did seem to like Dino Bravo and they did seem to respect him. Even the promoters that he worked with, they, they refer to him as a family member. And I don't think that, I mean, maybe they're just saying it because he's no longer with us, but nobody, nobody told him that they have to say that, especially in wrestling as cutthroat of a business as it is. There was a lot of people that obviously had a lot of love for Dino Bravo. And do I wish that they had addressed some other aspects to his character? Yes. But I, I do think that this was a better episode than last week because it, it definitely had more of a focus to it. It did not feel as disjointed, even though they did talk to a lot of people and there were a lot of voices I think this week just felt a little bit more focused and I'm not, I mean, somebody getting killed is not a positive thing, but I think you walked away from this documentary with a, with a much better feeling about the situation and the family than you did last week. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think that again, like kind of like what you said, this season of dark side of the ring has done a really great job of getting to the real human aspects of all the subjects. Like, even to a point, like, when we were talking New Jack, they still tried to humanize him a bit. Like, he's still a person. He did a lot of shitty things. But again, like, they're they're trying to give that real way to kind of connect everything. And, yeah, I found this one, like, it it, kind of pulled me in. I felt it was really easy to watch. Despite the fact that I don't feel that I learned anything really new. But I also want to kind of clarify that in the fact that these documentaries aren't made for me. Th- these are made for people that may only vaguely remember Dino Bravo or don't know much about Dino Bravo and don't write about professional wrestling for a living. 
So, like, I fully understand it. I'm just saying, like, me personally, I don't think I learned a lot. I think everything they said, I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, got that. I'm like, it's being told really well. I enjoy the family stuff and how well it's being done. But like, just like I said, I just wanted to note, like, I don't think I learned anything. And obviously, I think one of the drawbacks, and this was very predictable, though, was people really skipping over a lot of details and stuff, and that's all due to the mafioso thing. And I do not blame these people. Because I don't want to read about anybody getting fucking killed because they spoke up on a goddamn documentary. No, I don't either. I would much rather Vic Martell live uh, a long, happy 20 to 25 years more. That's that's what I want. I don't want Vic Martell to die because of this. That is the ultimate sign of arrogance, perhaps? Possibly. I like that. I got to bring the jokes, Larry, you know, well, you got to gotta keep it light. And I think, again, the only thing I kind of, I sort of didn't like, and again, I don't think it's, I don't think that they're lying, but like the, 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 the talk of the Montreal territory felt very carny filled. Like they, they wanted to make sure everybody knew that Montreal was fucking great. And I know it was big at the time and everything, but they really laid it on kind of thick at the beginning. They wanted you to believe that Montreal was on fire in 86 until Vince stole Andre, Martel, Dino, Haku, and the Rougeau brothers, sorry. And, um, yeah, that, that's me fucking misspelling shit and trying to read it. <laughs> um, and then, like, I don't know, it's like, I'm not judging Dino Bravo, but the whole him having nowhere to wrestle after leaving WWF, there were other places to work. Yeah, I mean WCW weren't they? Get, they were giving contracts to former WWF guys. I mean, fucking nails of all people was getting a job. You're telling me Dino Bravo couldn't too? Yeah. So I mean, it just um, I just want to like throw that out there. But no, I do. They've done a great job of humanizing people. I love that they've gotten family members because it's impossible to tell these stories in a quality way without those people, especially in a in a case where somebody has died or has been murdered and actually hearing his, his wife and his daughter speak. I mean, yeah, I mean, I felt absolutely horrible for these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if there are any, if there are any Montreal mafia members, if you could just get some poutine my way and smuggle that down to Memphis, I'd be forever grateful for that. Cause that is one of the best parts of Montreal is the poutine. There you go, dude. So, I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's again, Dark Side of the Ring. They've been doing really, really well this season. I, I have enjoyed a lot of what they've done. Even if I don't think every episode's a home run, like you were mentioning in the last one, I just think a lot of the elements that they've worked into the episodes this season have really surpassed what they did in season one. And I think I said it before season one was a really good learning season for them. I think that they w- learned what really worked, what to try to stay away from, for the most part, because they still filled us with a bunch of Cornet and Russo bullshit. Yeah, that's the one good thing that we have not had to deal with the last couple of weeks, and it's been kind of nice, and I know that they will, I, I'm sure that if, if you're looking at future weeks, they're going to be back, especially for the, for the Owen Hart episode, most likely, but... Uh, it's very good to see that we've gotten a respite from them and have heard from other voices because I think that's really important. And yeah, I just, I think that this was a solid episode. I would say 
it was it was definitely better than the Snook episode as far as the structure and the organization. Probably around the same quality as the the Brawl for All episode. I don't think that the Chris Benoit episode, mostly because it was two parts and they could dive in so much more. I mean, I think the Chris Benoit episodes are just going to stand out the most for that reason. And I mean, I still think the new Jack season was really strong too. And yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be really interesting to, uh, to watch future weeks and uh, yeah, whatever, whatever happens. Uh, I forget what the episode is next week. Next week is Dr. D, David Schultz, and the John Stossel incident. Which is going to be fascinating because both of those people are kind of douchey. Very much so. But yeah, we have Dr. D, David Schultz next week. The week after is Herb Abrams and the UWF. And then That's going to be really exciting because I know very little about it. Yeah, and then we have the Road Warriors and we close with Owen Hart. Yeah, that Road Warriors one I think is going to be another depressing one because the the hawks the hawk aspect of it is going to be really sad, and they're going to have to talk about what WWF did to them in 1998-1999, and uh, I'm going to get mad all over again because I remember I even as a 13 year old it felt kind of gross what they did. Um, was it, in 1998 the fall of 1998 we had both of the major wrestling companies in North America running alcoholic angles, Scott Hall and Hawk. That's pretty amazing that this was happening in both companies. And we also had Hawk allegedly committing suicide, so... Yes. He and jumped Scott, off the fucking Titan Tron. Yes, and yeah, I mean, it's it's really bad, and um, maybe <laughs> if Jim Cornette would have rant about that and Vince Russo, I would, uh, I would be much less inclined to get angry because uh, that was pretty disgusting. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how they get that one. I think you're right. That one's going to be depressing along with the Owen Hart one again. So, um, But yeah, that, that's, again, Dr. D, David Schultz, and the John Stoss one incident next week, followed by Herb Abrams and the UWF, the Road Warriors, and closing out with Owen Hart on May 19th. And yeah, again, um, I'm really enjoying the season. I, I think that, again, they fixed a lot of problems. They learned a lot of lessons from season one. And um, that's, I think, one of the best things about the series right now because, yeah, you can do documentaries and everything, but like, kind of like you said, they've found a way to get a lot of new people involved. And like one thing that always bothered me, like, like you get some of those WWE documentaries and they, they're really good a lot of the time. They're very well produced, strong production values and everything. But sometimes you get like the same fucking talking heads and they kind of say the same shit all the time. And I don't want that on these shows. You know, it's like, I don't want Cornette and Russo on all the time. Don't, don't get me wrong. Not a big Jimmy Cornette fan these days, even though I used to be in, his, in my younger days as more of him as a manager and everything. But the fact is, is like when it comes to like talking about the Road Warriors and Owen Hart, I'm not going to mind if Jim Cornette's on because those are things he should be talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think there is certainly value to having Cornette speaking on certain subjects. There's value to him not speaking on certain subjects, and I just want them to uh, to balance that. And yeah, I agree with you that it's also important to have these independent documentaries that are not influenced by WWE. WWE should not be the only place that gets to tell the history of wrestling because they have a very specific viewpoint, and that viewpoint is most of the time highly inaccurate because – 
even down to some of the things that Vince McMahon has done over the over the last 35 years. I mean, there are different incidents that have been that have been, you know, ignored or not shown upon. Um, and I know that in future weeks we're going to be discussing what we would like to see in the future. And uh, I've got some thoughts, but we'll save that for probably the, the last podcast that we do when we talk about the Owen Hart incident. Exactly. So um, that is going to kind of wrap us up, Jerome. Before I give out the uh, the listening info and stuff, tell everybody about your podcast so they can follow you. So yes, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. You can go and follow my superhero podcast at Hero Pantheon, where we discuss all manner of superhero movies. We are currently in the midst of our run of talking about 2019 films, including Shazam, Glass, Dark Phoenix, Captain Marvel. And of course, we are ending our season. We're ending season two with our discussion of Avengers Endgame. And uh, then we'll be moving on to other things, and I'll plug that when it is appropriate. But yes, that is where you can find me, uh, at Hero Pantheon, at Jerome C. 1985. And uh, all of the podcasts can be found at EnterTheRealWorld.com. I should also mention Kevin Ford and I do a podcast about Breaking Bad, which also talks about drugs. There you go. And you poor bastard, you went back and watched that X-Men movie? Yes, I did go back and I watched Dark Phoenix for a second time, and it was it was very very unpleasant. Yeah, it um it debuted on HBO like a couple weekends ago. My daughter was like, "Whenever there's like anything like that on, she's like, hey, record that." It's like, all right. So then she was like, "Hey, let's let's watch a movie." She's like, "Let's let's watch this." I'm like, "Do we have to?" And she's like, "Yeah." She's like, "I want to hang out with you." I'm like, "All right." And then we started watching it, and I was like, I remember we saw it in the theater and I fell asleep in the theater and I remembered why. (laughs) Uh, there was a, there was the, there, there was a current member of your staff who was a fan of this movie. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand how TJ Hawk can enjoy this movie. I don't know. All I know is the dark Phoenix lady is very pretty. That's, That's my big takeaway. That is, that is your hot take. That's right. So, but uh, Jerome, again, thank you as always for your time, my friend. A good time talking to you. I want to remind everybody, this has been the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, and the 411mania.com website. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, subscribe on YouTube, give us a thumbs up, and just uh, thank you guys for listening. You have been great during this time, and everybody stay home and stay safe.